Today on Blue 58, as if there is not enough to talk about, Odell Beckham Jr. is a free agent and reportedly has some interest in your Green Bay Packers. Should that interest be mutual? I think there's a case to be made. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Things have been a little bit on, on the negative side in Green Bay lately. A little bit of internal turmoil. A little bit of, um, well, just the last couple of weeks we've talked about how previews have been unusual. It's been weird stuff going on between the COVID onset that happened in Arizona on a Thursday night game, no less, and everything that's gone on with Aaron Rodgers. Pretty much since then, it's been a little bit unusual. So let's add a little bit more unusualness to that. Odell Beckham Jr. is now a free agent. Released, actually not released, waived by the Cleveland Browns. If you know the difference, you know I am calling that out. If you don't know the difference, it doesn't matter because he has cleared waivers and is now a free agent and can sign with whatever team he would like. And apparently one of the teams he would like to sign with is the Packers. Now, if you're skeptical of that, I understand. Uh, Teams or players have been connected to the Packers before, often as a means of leveraging a better deal somewhere else. Uh, But assuming that this is legit, this would be a pretty big story. So let's talk through it a little bit. Does it make sense? I think to determine whether or not it makes sense, we've got to ask three significant questions. First, who is Odell Beckham Jr. as a player in 2021? Secondly, why should the Packers consider him? And thirdly, where would he fit in? Now, before we ask or answer any of those questions, I guess I've asked them already, before we answer any of those questions, I want to talk for a second about the C word, not that one, Australian listeners. Uh, the the cancer word, locker room cancer, is the context um, there. That comes up a lot, and it usually has some connotations that I don't want to get into here, but it really has nothing to do with whether or not a guy is actually a cancer to your locker room or not. Let's talk about, though, whether or not it would matter that Odell Beckham Jr. allegedly is Um, not a great guy to have around in your locker room. My theory on locker room cancers is pretty simple. Locker room cancers don't really matter until everything else has gone off the rails. And that is my belief because I think if your team culture is weak enough to be brought down by one single person, your culture really wasn't worth saving anyway. If this is going to be that big of a problem for the Packers or for anybody, you're they're probably not a team who should be a serious contender to begin with. You shouldn't get undone by just one guy. And if you do, you probably had some pretty deep-seated problems already. Let's compare Odell Beckham Jr., by the way, to some other notable locker room cancers who have passed through Green Bay. Four examples right off the top of our heads. Do you think he's a worse locker room presence than Martellus Bennett? the guy who retired over a fake injury midseason after things got a little bit difficult? Do you think he's worse than Demarius Randall, who basically had such a high opinion of himself and such a low opinion of the coaching staff that he got himself traded to Cleveland? Do you think he's a worse locker room cancer than Josh Sitton, who was a high-end lineman, high enough end lineman that he signed with somebody immediately and started? Um but was such a rough presence to be around in Green Bay that the Packers, after trying to trade him, cut him for nothing? Do you think he's a worse locker room 
presence than Andre Risen, a guy who literally started fights on the football field. I mean, put it in a little bit of context and recognize that if there's problems with his locker room presence, there may have been bigger problems there already. So returning to our questions, first, who is Odell Beckham Jr. in 2021? First and foremost, this is not peak Odell Beckham Jr., and it's worth wondering and worth arguing over whether or not he's ever been peak Odell since his rookie season. That year was his best year, 91 catches, 1,305 yards, and 12 touchdowns in 13 games. Not too shabby, young fella. That year, sixth in de- uh, sixth in defense adjusted yards above replacement from Football Outsiders, ninth in their DVOA metric, good and good. Uh, his Pro Football Focus grade for the season was ninety point eight. Again, very very good. Has not reached those heights again. This year in Cleveland, through six games, six games in which he appeared, that is, he had 17 catches for 232 yards and no touchdowns, while posting a career-low 50% catch rate. Some of that, of course, is out of his control. You can only do so much to get the ball thrown your way. His dad apparently would have some issues with how, how often it's coming his way and with how often Baker Mayfield decides to look his way, but those are not the Packers' problems. Uh, What would be the Packers' problem is his overall performance. And uh, his overall performance is rated a 66.4 by Pro Football Focus. That sounds bad, but it would make him the ninth best graded player on the Packers' offense and third best wide receiver. Devontae Adams is grading out at a 91.6 so far this season, far above Randall Cobb, the second best player so far at a 72.2, and a few points ahead of the third graded wide receiver so far. Can you guess who it is? Amari Rogers, 61.1. Uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling doesn't have enough snaps to really qualify so far. Uh, excuse me, Rogers is a 66.1, not a 61.1. Uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling coming in at a 64 so far this season uh, in relatively limited snaps, but worth noting. So that's where he would fit in among the Packers. You're looking at probably at best your, your third best wide receiver, Uh, once MVS comes along, he'll probably bump up a little bit because we're working with relatively limited numbers of snaps so far. Um, You're looking at a guy who's going to be in that third or fourth wide receiver slot. Potentially the most important question, though, for, uh, for Mr. Odell Beckham Jr. is whether or not he can run block, though. And historically, he's graded out pretty well in that area, according to Pro Football Focus. Right now, he would actually be the second highest graded run blocker among the team's wide receivers. So, pretty darn good. So then, all that being considered, if he is diminished from what he once was, if he would be in that third or fourth wide receiver slot, why should the Packers consider him? I think there's a case to be made here that they should consider him not because they have a need at wide receiver, but because they have a need at tight end. Let me explain. Last Sunday, the Packers did something I've never or rarely see them do under uh, under Matt LaFleur. They came out for a few snaps in 10 personnel. 10 personnel is one running back and no tight ends. And if you know anything about Matt LaFleur, that's pretty unusual. He loves his tight ends and he loves to deploy them in unique com- combinations. He loves Mercedes Lewis with uh, Robert Tunyon. He loves Tunyon with combinations of Josiah DeGuara and uh, Dominique Daphne. He loves combinations of Lewis, Daphne, and DeGuara. But with Tunyon out for the rest of the year, 
the Packers have a lack of receiving talent at tight end. And I love Mercedes Lewis as much as the next guy, but you can't really argue he doesn't get down the field as well as he maybe once did. And he did, and he never really was much of a deep threat, not really even an intermediate threat. Blocking has always been his game. Catching passes has been secondary, and that's fine. He's done it really, really well for a long, long time in a very competitive league. But when the Packers were in 10 personnel, they deployed Alan Lazard a lot like a tight end. He was very near the um, the offensive line, basically just provided another big body around the line of scrimmage. And we understand that that has been his use case for the Packers a lot throughout his career. Uh, he loves to block. Uh, he's a big body. You might as well use him like another tight end. He's not all that much smaller than Robert Tunyon, who is already pretty small as far as tight ends go anyway. So if they're going to use Alan Lazard to fill in as a quasi-tight end, that would mean they have something of a need in their base, which is 11 personnel. Base for everybody is 11 personnel. One running back, one tight end, and three wide receivers. If Lazard isn't going to act like a receiver as much when the Packers are in their base, that means there may be opportunities opening up for another wide receiver type. Now, normally you would say that would be filled by Randall Cobb, or if not Cobb, maybe Amari Rogers. Cobb has done well so far this year. It's been a good pickup, but we have to consider that Amari Rogers is contributing basically nothing as a wide receiver so far this year. With need at wide receiver the last two games, he's played a combined like 16 snaps on offense, and all of them came in the Arizona game. He didn't play a single snap on offense against the Chiefs. And that is in a game where the Packers were running four wide receivers out in a formation consistently. That should be a little bit concerning and should speak a little bit to the need the Packers have there at receiver. So if the Packers have a slight need there, how does Odell Beckham Jr. fit in in Green Bay? So let's consider that. 11 personnel, if that is the Packers' base, how do they fill that out if Odell Beckham Jr. is around? So you've got your one running back, your three wide receivers, your tight end. So Aaron Jones or A.J. Dillon are going to be your running back. You've got Devontae Adams, and when he's back and fully healthy, and there is reason to believe he's not fully healthy yet, Marquez Valdez-Scantling as your top two wide receivers. If Alan Lazard is your functional tight end, I think you can create some really interesting things if you're rotating Randall Cobb and Odell Beckham Jr. in situationally as your third wide receiver. So say you want to run some more jet sweep type stuff. Well, I think Randall Cobb's your man there. If you want to run some more uh, push the ball down the field type stuff, Odell Beckham Jr. might be there running, you know, 10, 12-yard dig routes and things like that. That seems to be, based on the stuff that we've seen out of him in Cleveland so far this year, something he'd be very well suited to doing. More to that point, you can still rotate Randall Cobb in when you need him. And probably that's going to be on third downs because Cobb has been so reliable on third downs both this season and historically with Aaron Rodgers. He does a really great job of finding where he needs to be uh, on that down and distance, getting first downs, moving the chains, helping the Packers there. That's my Odell Beckham Jr. case. If he doesn't end up in Green Bay, that's fine. This episode is just going to age like milk anyway, but hey, that's what podcasts are for. Get the takes out there and let's see what happens. 
I wanted to spend some time uh, answering some questions today from a recent thing I published on Patreon. So patreon.com slash thepowersweep is where you would see this. You do need to be a supporter to read it, but this is part of a larger piece, and this is something we've been doing every month there. And Ask Me Anything post. I take questions via our Discord server on whatever people have on their minds. And I just wanted to give you a sampling of a couple of those questions from uh, the most recent post for November. We post one of these every month, and this month's is a doozy. 3,000 words worth of written answers to your questions. Had a lot of fun doing this and uh, thought I'd share a couple answers here. So uh, first question I wanted to take a look at was this one. Why do you think it is that some organizations are so consistently terrible over long periods of time? Think of the Jaguars, Jets, Lions, Washington football team, and so on. And as a follow-up to a possible answer about that, do you think that the garbage status, quote-unquote, of these organizations becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy even when they have tons of bright young talent in the building? They will always want to leave for a more premier team. I'm specifically thinking of all the coaches from Washington. Great question here. And those young questions, the uh, young coaches the questioner was asking about, uh, harkens back to when the, the Washington football team, or the, or the Redskins as they were called at the time, um, had Kyle Shanahan... Sean McVay and Matt LaFleur all on staff together, and none of them ended up being the long-term head coach in Washington. I think it does become something of a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think it's because there's very little turnover at one spot in some of these organizations. The common thread in a lot of perpetually bad teams in the NFL is ownership-related. The only real way to become a good team in the NFL is to make a series of strong decisions and have those decisions pay off. Obviously, two parts there. You can make good decisions and still have bad outcomes, but making those good decisions is the first part of that equation there. So think back to when the Packers themselves kind of rose out of their decades-long doldrums. When did it start? Well, it started with Bob Harlan getting more power in the Packers organization. The board gave Harlan broad authority to do basically whatever he wanted, which would have been a bad choice if Harlan, the de facto owner, turned out to not be good at his job, but he was, and he used that power to hire Ron Wolf, which turns out to be about the best call he could have made, considering who else uh, may have been considered there. So he hires Ron Wolf, and then Ron Wolf hires Mike Holmgren, trades for Brett Favre, signs Reggie White, you know the stories from there. But if you look at that, there's a long series of good decisions there sound decisions, things that were made with sight towards the future as well as the presence, as well as the present, rather. But look at how many places there are where things could have derailed entirely. What if Ron Wolf was a bad general manager? What if Mike Holmgren didn't turn out to be a good head coach? What if Brett Favre didn't ever get it together on the field with all he was dealing with off the field? So those are good decisions, yes, but it does take a little bit of luck. And sometimes when you you know, consistently go about making decisions in a bad way, your luck never really seems to change. There's a lot of, you know, there is there is an element of luck to a lot of things, but you can kind of make your own luck too by putting yourself in a position to succeed. Second, these all trace back to Harlan. Again, the team's functional owner. If you've got a guy who is not good at making, you know, sound decisions in that role, You're going to stay bad for a long time. Look at the Jacksonville Jaguars, just as a for instance. We don't know how Urban Meyer is going to work out for the Jaguars yet. Signs are not good, though. 
Um, but all related to the Meyer thing, the Jaguar seems to have made a whole host of unusual decisions there. Hiring Meyer himself was pretty strange. Given the trends we've seen with guys succeeding in the NFL lately, it's all pretty young guys kind of on the way up. Meyer is, if not at the NFL level, still within coaching as a whole, kind of a retread. Um, They also gave him broad roster-shaping power, another kind of odd move considering he's never done that at the pro level. And then they stuck with him amidst this controversy that was entirely self-caused, saying, yeah, we're going to stand by him, he's going to change, whatever, despite the fact that they had a pretty substantial internal revolt among players, saying, we don't like this guy, we want to get rid of him. And the Jaguars said, no, we're going to stick with him. So you can see why, given the presence of consistent ownership with these franchises that are perpetually bad, how they stay bad. It's because one of the key decision makers isn't changing. I've heard this analogy recently about, you know, some government officials too. Why do you keep ending up in the same same bad scenarios again and again and again? Why does nothing ever change? Well, it's because the people making decisions don't change. And that is why I think a lot of these bad, bad franchises stay bad for a long time. I also got another question here about something not football related, but thought it might be interesting to you since you are listening to this as a podcast. So another questioner asks, how long does an episode typically take to create? I imagine it's a tighter window for a game breakdown. Is there any benefit on downloads to firing it out quickly? This is a good question, and I love talking about podcasting, so I'll answer it for you here in addition to Patreon as well. So back when I was in college, my my undergraduate degree is broadcasting and electronic media. Basically, um, that was the department's um, fancy name for radio journalism. That's why I went to this school that I did, uh, and that's why I um, pursued the major that I did, because that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a radio radio news reporter, do some play-by-play stuff too. If I could, whatever happened to work out, that's what I would do. And um, as it turns out, putting a lot of those skills to work as a, as a podcaster. But back when I was in college, a professor I had, who was a longtime morning radio guy, uh, taught me his rule of thumb for prepping for shows. He said, we should spend at least two hours preparing for every one hour we're going to be on the air. That approach worked when I was working in radio, when I had to plan out a show. If I had a three-hour time slot I had to fill, I would spend about six hours prepping for it. Um, And that ensures you're never going to run out of stuff. It ensures you're always going to be familiar with what you're talking about. Nothing is going to catch you off guard among your own prep, which is a real problem people have if they just slam together a show really quickly. You'll, You'll not make points well You'll not um, be authoritative when you're on the air. If you slam stuff together really quickly, you're going to end up catching yourself off guard. So that approach worked for me working in radio, and it's more or less held true for podcasting too. So generally, I shoot for episodes to be about 20 to 25 minutes long, which is in itself a strategic choice. Um, Statistics show that the average commute time in the United States is about 25 minutes. So I figure if anybody is listening to this on their way to work, we should shoot for that um, that length for an episode, meaning you can get it in if you only have about 30 minutes to listen. Plus, I don't like it when people just sit around and talk for basically no reason just to fill out an episode. There are way too many podcasts that are an hour, hour and a half long when they don't have to be. So assuming that 25 minutes rounds up to about half an hour. That means I should be spending, by that rule of thumb, about an hour preparing for every episode. And then generally that's about the low end time 
it takes as far as prepping an episode. Usually I spend probably an hour and a half preparing over the course of a couple days for a given episode. Obviously, that's a tighter window when we do post-game shows, and sometimes I don't hit the benchmark there. But when something is fresh in in my mind, you you don't necessarily have to prep quite as much. I just want to write down a few bullet points and go. But even then, it's usually about an hour of prep before I sit down and record a post-game show. There is a benefit I've found to getting things out quickly, but it, it does vary a little bit too. It's mostly like the, the first 24 hours or so after a game. I haven't noticed a big benefit in getting it out really quickly out of after a game. So say there's a noon kickoff. I don't think there's any benefit in, in getting it out by like 4, 4.30 or so. The biggest thing that I have found that's important is having something for people to listen to the morning after a game. So as long as I can make sure there's something out, if it's a Sunday game, by Monday morning when people are getting up and going to work, that is when I see the biggest download benefit. So just make sure that people have something when they are ready to listen, not so much when I am ready to release that episode, just when they are ready to listen. Again, you can hear or rather read all of these questions at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Wanted to take a second to shout out three Patreon supporters there. David Dubois, Adam Carruthers, and Luke Woodford, all faithful Patreon supporters. Thank you, each of you, for your support. And for anybody who's considering supporting as well, um, you'll get a shout out eventually too. And it gives you an opportunity to read that content, be a part of our Discord server, and hang out and talk with other like-minded Packers fans. It's a good time final thing I wanted to talk about today was just some stuff that's going well. Uh, So as you know, we recently added baby number two to our family, which meant that I was on uh, paternity leave for a while, which meant that I did not have quite as much time in my daily life to to compile some of the advanced stats that we track at thepowersweep.com. Well, recently I've been catching up on that and uh, have noticed a few things that I thought I would bring to your attention that are going well with the Packers. Just some bullet point stuff here really quickly. Uh, these are all things you can observe for yourself at thepowersweep.com, uh, but thought I would call these out as well uh, for your listening pleasure here. Uh, these range across all the stats that we track at thepowersweep.com, so go over there and check them out at your leisure as well, uh, but thought I would bring a couple of them to your attention. First, uh, through nine games, eight I guess for him since he didn't play this past Sunday, uh, or two Sundays ago, two games ago, you get it. Uh, Devontae Adams has recorded 18 explosive plays. That is a run of 12 yards or more or a catch of 16 yards or more. His career high is 29, so he is well ahead of pace for surpassing his career high in explosive plays, and he is by far the Packers' leader there. Uh, Rashawn Gary uh, has a career high in his pressure rate, 16.2% so far, and he has improved each and every year so far. Dean Lowry, tracking his total pressures, uh, already has 20 on the season so far. 29 is his career high. And continuing to speak of Dean Lowry, he had a four-game streak so far this year with at least one ball hawk. Ball hawks are plays that are made on the ball, uh, passes, defense, interceptions, forced fumbles, or sacks. Dean Lowry, Big Dean, if you ask Rashawn Gary, uh, had a four-game stretch with at least one ball hawk. Some of those sacks, some of those were uh, passes defense. He's always been good at jumping up and deflecting the passes, uh, but he had four games in a row where he made a noteworthy play on the ball. Speaking of, Eric Stokes leads the Packers with nine ball hawks so far this year. Pretty darn good for a rookie 
well on his way to ending up in double digits. Uh, Devondre Campbell, by the way, is second on the team with eight ball hawks. He has two in every category so far, but Sachs, a well-rounded playmaker at linebacker for the Packers. Who could have imagined such a thing? Back to the pass rush, Kenny Clark is playing big so far this year. Production ratio, one of those metrics that we track, uh, basically dividing sacks and tackles for loss by the amount of games played. If you're at an elite level, you should be at a one or a higher. Maybe not elite, that's probably too strong a word, but at a very good level, you should be at one or higher. It's rare to see an interior defensive lineman uh, hit that figure, but he is right smack dab on 1.0 in terms of that ratio for the year. Uh, the second highest mark of his career so far, and a big part of that is his six tackles for loss. Kenny Clark is having a great season so far. He's also posted the third highest pressure rate of his career, getting pressures on 10.69% of his pass rushes uh, through nine games this year. Finally, I thought I'd finish with newcomer Whitney Merciless. His pressure rate is also in double digits, 10.7% so far this year. That is his first time in double digits since 2018. Well, as you'll notice, we have hit the 25-minute mark, which means that if you're an average commuter in the United States, you have arrived at work just about now. Have a great day wherever you are. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to uh, share it with somebody you think would enjoy it as well. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation we're having around the Green Bay Packers and ultimately help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.